Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system. With the support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. My name is Lee, I'm a history teacher and a union rep, and this week's episode is the start of a series of episodes where we intend to explore the issues raised by recent worldwide events surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement. Given the extraordinary attention that recent events in Bristol have received, we felt it would be appropriate to welcome a local expert in Bristol's history and its connections with the slave trade, Dr. Roger Ball. In this interview, I am joined by Requires Improvement co-hosts Lauren and Tom. So without further ado, let's roll that interview tape. Welcome to this interview. Uh, we are very honoured today to have uh, Dr. Roger Ball. Uh, he is an author and a contributor to the Bristol Radical History Group. He's also a member of the Countering Colston Campaign Group. And uh, in very timely uh, you know, news, he's got a book out. His latest book is co-authored by him and Mark Steeds, and it's called From Wolfstan to Colston. And I am joined on this interview by Requires Improvement co-hosts, Lauren, say hi. Hello. And Tom, say hi. Hello. Superb. So let's get into some questions for Roger. Um, you know, our reason for asking you to come on the show is obviously everyone's talking about the historic events that happened in Bristol a week and a half ago where at the Black Lives Matter protest, uh, it culminated in the toppling of a very prominent statue, uh, the statue of a man called Edward Colston, who for, you know, approximately uh, a century and a half has had pride of place on the city centre of Bristol, but a crowd of 10,000 people decided it was time for it to go. And not only did they topple the statue, but they also uh, disposed of it in the watery docks. And uh, this has obviously led to a surge of interest in who Edward Colston was. And, you know, we've been really pleased on the podcast to see how this history is now becoming more widely known. Uh, People have started to understand the basic facts that this guy who has a statue, this guy who has, you know, tower blocks, concert halls, schools, streets named after him, he was in fact, as well as a philanthropist, his wealth was built on the slave trade. You know, the way he was able to, you know, donate money to the city of Bristol was through the capture and transportation and working to death of around 85,000 African people during the 17th and 18th centuries. And so, Roger, you know, my, my, my first... You know, question to you is that, um, you know, people are starting to grasp the basic facts about Edward Colston, you know, but what we've what we the reason we asked you to come on this show and what we find so interesting about your contribution is that you're very much into the history behind the history. So my question is, I mean, how did Edward Colston come to have so many locations and institutions in Bristol named after him, including the statue in the town centre? Uh, well, the first, first thing to say is, is that, um, before I actually got involved in researching him, you know, there's there's a kind of common knowledge about Edward Colston in Bristol. So that's been around for most of the time I've, I've been in Bristol, 40 years. So you kind of know some things, uh, but certainly I'd never really looked into him until I was asked to in 2015 by the Countering Colston Group to actually go into the history. And I think immediately what surprised me was the fact that, um, it, I mean, the kind of idea I had in a sort of, 
the folk memory of Colston that we all have, you know, from which includes bands like Massive Attack and all these people who talked about Colston in the past, was that he was just an investor <clears throat> in the slave trade. And, and so the impression was, is that then the argument's a bit like, you know, okay, he made money out of it, uh, but, you know, what that's not as bad as directly being involved in it. But when I actually looked, what was interesting was that um, he wasn't just an, a major investor, but he was like a major organizer of the slave trade in the 17th century. And there was only one company that did it at the time, which is a Royal African company, it was a monopoly. And he was like an executive in that company for about 10 years, and then the deputy, gov <coughs> the deputy governor for two years. So effectively, he was the second in command of the whole of the English slave trade. Um, in the 17th, for a period in the 17th century. And so I was quite astounded. I was like, well, hang on a minute, this is not just an involvement for investment. This is like he's sitting on all the committees that organise this. So I think that was the first history within a history, perhaps, you know, the, the, or, you know a hidden history, you know, it, it, even around what we knew. So I think that was, that was an important point, because to me, it's not just a question of, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people invested in slavery, or the slave trade in Bristol, certainly in the 18th century. And, uh, but the fact of the matter was he was a leading player and that had been somewhat obscured. Although the information has been around for about a hundred years. So a Reverend Wilkins famously wrote a book in the 1920s where he exposed a lot of uh, truths around Colston, which are things that have been obscured. So it's not just the question of the slave trade being obscured. There are a couple of other things that have been um, let's say airbrushed out of history by the by the by the people who 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 promoted Colston. And the first thing is is that he was, you know, he, I call him a Christian fundamentalist. So other people have called him a religious bigot. Um, and what that meant was is that he was effectively high Anglican and he would not give any money or do any philanthropy for anybody. I mean certainly not for dissenters, actually Quakers and Baptists and all that lot. Not, he wouldn't have anything to do with them. He hated them. He also wouldn't actually support, you know, certainly not the Catholics, you can forget them. So they weren't going to get any money. So the idea that he was this kind of universal philanthropist for the city had been created in the Victorian period. And in fact, the, it was quite the opposite. He was quite clear all the way through about his donations that they should not go to anybody who was outside of the, the Church of England. And certainly, even within the Church of England, he was a fundamentalist. So he even kind of stopped things going to people in the Church of England who were more liberal. So it was selective philanthropy. That's very important. And that was obscured. Um, and that also extended to sort of political bigotry as well. So he was a he was a high Tory, and he hated the Whigs. He was very clear again that he wouldn't, you know, he didn't support anybody. He was a Whig. He wouldn't put any money into anything that was run by the Whigs. So so it's kind of political religious bigotry had been obscured, and that's really important because he'd been created as another person who was this good Samaritan figure, um, you know, who'd given to the whole city. He was the father of the city. Now, that what's interesting about this is that this was all created in the Victorian period. I mean, Edward Colston died in 1721. Um, and he was, you know, there was, you know, he was sort of known. I mean, he didn't live in Bristol most of the time. He lived in London because he had to run the slave trade from London. He couldn't run it from Bristol because Bristol wasn't involved till the early 18th century. So, so he didn't really live in Bristol, but he was known when he died. You know, there was some a society or two that were set up to kind of promote him after his death. But fundamentally, his he was reinvented in the in the Victorian period, 
And one writer I must commend because he's done some brilliant work, which we've been propagating, is Spencer Jordan. He did a big study on elites um, in, in Bristol in the 19th century and um, uh, particularly looked at the, what he called, what has been called the cult of Colston. So it was a recreation of the Victorian period. And basically the, the business class, some of whom were related back to slave traders or in the same families as people who had, had plantations, they needed a, a, they wanted to pick an icon in the city to kind of represent the city. And they chose Colston or, so they chose Colston and then kind of recreated a history around him, which made him this good Samaritan figure. And the two, two things that Spencer Jordan says is that they tried to recreate him as a moral saint and as, as, as a merchant prince. So the merchant bit's important because the most powerful organization historically in for certainly for 500 years in Bristol and still exists today is the Society of Merchant Venturers. Uh, originally, they were kind of uh, a kind of cartel of um, traders who controlled international trade in and out of Bristol in the 16th century. Um, they formed them, they became, they, they were around as a group that became official by Royal Charter in 1552. And since then, and through partly through the expansion of the slave trade in the 18th century, they basically took political and economic power in the city. So they're probably the, the, the ruling body of uh, the unofficial ruling body of the city through many centuries. So if you if you were a trader, you know, like a, a major merchant, you you know that's the organisation you needed to be in. It's a pretty much a closed shop. It was to exclude other traders from getting involved in international trade. But then they came to take over. So so you would find members of the merchant ventures who were, you know, magistrates and judges. They would be the people around the police. You know, in the, in the 19th century on the the watch committee, they kind of were. MPs and you know they had all political power as well uh, and obviously there were major sort of well initially many of them sort of international traders and slave traders but then they converted themselves in the in the sort of 1830s onwards into a new business class you know running factories and stuff like that sort of modern industrial capitalism yeah with the help uh, with the help of lots of uh, compensation from the government <laughs> for ending slavery they were paid off you know as as featured on recent david olasoga stuff you know it's really sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but you know that's that's how that wealth was converted you know <laughs> Yeah, they, well, that's exactly what they did. I mean, that, you know, the money from compensation. I mean, what what I do disagree with David Olasoga about, about that is he suggested that money went very widely, or he made intimated that money went quite widely, particularly into the middle classes and to women in particular. But when we studied Bristol, we found that only 97 people got the money. And, and only of that, only eight people, eight people got half the money. And the money's a lot. I mean, it was 400 about £440,000 at the time. You're talking about hundreds of millions of pounds and relative, you know, to today. And and that money was not widely distributed. It went to a very small group. And women actually, there were women involved, but they only actually took about 4% of the money. Like 4 or 5% of the money went to women. And that was mostly through inheritances. So, so the idea that this money penetrated into the middle classes is kind of a bit of a myth. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they, they mutated as a group. You know, the merchant ventures have survived. I mean, I was amazed when I came to the city that an organization that had basically run the port and organized the slave trade and become the most important sort of group in the city was still there. 
I mean, I thought this must have gone in the nineteen twenties or something, isn't it? I mean, we got you know sort of municipal socialism and things like that, <laughs> but they've survived and, they, and now they they kind of operate as a sort of charitable body. But when you actually look into them, you find they've got the things in lots and lots of pies. So, for example, they got involved in education earlier, you know, with the academy system. Uh, they got they're involved. You know, they've obviously had links to education, but they've sort of entered the state sector in the last twenty years, in particular. Uh, they're also involved in healthcare, civic, arts, culture. You know, they act as a sort of body of patronage body. A bit, it's kind of a bit civil war the way they operate, really. Which is they, um, you know, they they're unelected, undemocratic. Uh, they've got lots of money. You have to be very wealthy, and they um, then use patronage to run institutions. So you often find people who are, shall we say, apologetic to them or sympathetic to them because they're getting their wages paid by them. So, for example, the head of the old Vic the Theatre in Bristol, for example, or things like that. You know, you find there's a merchant venture sitting above them. So that's kind of the history. Now, merchant ventures were the kind of body that Edward Colston used to. He kind of used the, the merchant venture. He was a member for 38 years, um, but the merchant venture's function for Edward Colston was to run his philanthropy for him, to act as commissars in the sense that if, you know, if a priest said something which was a bit too liberal for Edward Colston, then they would take the money away, that sort of thing. They were there to monitor the schools uh, that he set up and make sure there was no dissenters in there, no Catholics, no, you know, nobody who wasn't Church of England, and to make sure that when the, when the students came out, they weren't apprentices for dissenters or anything. So those kind of role as sort of policemen of the money to make sure it did go to the selected groups that Colston wanted it to. And also they, they also were, you know, effectively as executors, you could argue, in the sense that they were, they were given control over the money and given control over the institutions. Um, that was their role. And since then, you know, much later, they, the, you get the recreation of Edward Colston as a, as a Victorian hero in the city. And that's done by people in the merchant ventures. But fundamentally, it was a relatively small group of people who chose Colston. And then they propagated the myth through the newspapers, through rituals. So, the, you know, they had a Colston day where they gave the working class a day off, you know what I mean, in the Victorian period, which is quite rare to have days off. And they would have all these marches, ceremonies, banquets, and prime ministers would come down. Like, you know, famously Winston Churchill came down and did a speech to a, one of the Colston societies and got himself horsewhipped by a suffragette. Um, so, so, that, so it's very important to see that ritual, ritual and commemoration was created 150 years after his death. And it was used to fix this into Bristol's sort of memory that he was a city father. So I don't blame people in Bristol or anything for being a bit up, you know, a bit pro Colston because they've had it, you know, that's, it's been part of the history of Bristol for, you know, since Victorian period. Mm. And, you know, there's all sorts of strange stuff like iconography. I mean, they keep his hair and nails in the Merchant's Hall and they created these stories about when they opened his tomb in 1843, he was miraculously preserved, you know, he's like a sort of, I mean, you know, he's one step down from Jesus, really. I mean, the way that he's treated, you know, mm. or was created in Victorian period. I mean, you know, it's, it's very strange. It's like you're dealing with some sort of weird religious iconography. And that's why the Reverend Wilkins called it the cult of Colston. Now, uh, Roger, these are all absolutely fantastic points. But what, one thing that stood out to me from reading the articles on the Bristol Radical History Group is that 
um, this co- the cult of Colston was not hegemonic at its time. You know, uh, in to, you know, a couple of things stood out to me in particular: the difficulty they had in actually getting the money together for the statue, and also the 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 government intervention that was necessary to force the merchant venturers into opening a school for girls. I don't know if you wanted to expand on those two points. Yeah, they're very important. I mean, the first one is. You know, if you read, when you used to walk past the statue, used to, that's not quite nice saying that, um, then, uh, you know, you'd read on it, you know, it was erected by the people, you know, the citizens of Bristol and all this. And there was a perception that, you know, it was like, oh, it was massively popular, you know, and like, oh, everybody put money in. It was, you know, everybody in Bristol wanted it. That was kind of the impression you got. And then when you started to actually look into the history of it, you get quite a different picture. So as you as you mentioned, I mean, the first thing that came across was they couldn't get the money. So, and these are people, you know, and what what the, the, the basically the idea for the statue was the idea of one person who was the guy Arrowsmith who ran all the printing and publishing in the whole city. He was a major sort of businessman, and he was in one of the Colston societies. He was actually, a, you know, kind of in the in the society that was pro Whig because the size broke on political ground. So you get, you know, the Tory one and the Whig one and non-aligned one, you know, that sort of thing. So um, it was his idea, and the date is really important. I mean, the statue went up in 1895, so um, it's not as I as I first imagined something to do with the 18th century when he died. You know, you kind of get that impression. Oh, you know, they loved him in 1721. They put a statue up about him. And again, no, it was a reinvention much later. But the date is important because Bristol was riven with like strikes and the rise of trade unionism and socialism in the late 1880s. And first with the Dockers' strikes, you know, cotton factory strikes, and then Black Friday, famously in 18, 1892, you know, where, where they send the cavalry and police in to break up thousands of trade unionists who are marching, you know, and those people are injured. So it's a really fractious period between about 1888 and 1894, you know, four, three, four. And you're starting to get, you know, socialists in local elections. So they're, start, they're becoming, you know, because when the franchise is opening up, you are getting socialist councillors. And, you know, and, and now people are on the streets talking about forming a party for the workers, which was eventually the Labour Party, I suppose. So that that is possible. It appears from the evidence that they were trying to unify the city again. And one way they were doing that was to think, what can we use? Well, we've got this we've got Colston in the bag a little bit, you know, because people are aware of it and it's part of the, you know, the sort of last 20 or 30 years of culture. So there is, you know, one of the suggestions is that the statue was to unify the city. Um, now, clearly, when they opened the public subscription, because they couldn't get enough money from the wealthy people and the merchant ventures, they put money in, but it wasn't enough. So they put it out to public subscription and they didn't really get any money. So, you know, there may have been, uh, you know, quite a few working class people down on that day on Colston Day, their day off down in the city centre, which I'd imagine what a lot of people did anyway. We know that. Uh, but I'm not sure they all supported it. We don't know that. We don't know what they think, really. So that's the first point. So statue's got its own... That's why I wrote, when I wrote the article, Myths Within Myths, it's, it's all about that. It's about, you know, things that you imagine, and then when you actually look, you find something quite different. The other area you mentioned, which is really important, and um, uh, unfortunately, I was reported to the uh, National Adjudicator for Education for writing an article in the Bristol Post by, by merchant venturers who happily now resigned 
from the Ventures Trust for a number of reasons, including making false allegations about um, campaigners. Um, but I was accused, because I wrote an article, because I thought it was very interesting when the, there was obviously all the Colston campaigning and the debate came up about changing the names of the schools. So the two main schools are the original um, uh, Colston Connected School, which is Colston's, which is in Stapleton in Bristol, which is a you know a private school. Um, oh, hang on a minute. How could that be the case? So how could this school that was originally a school for poor boys end up as a private school? So one of the things the far right aren't really dealing with is the fact they might be going out to protest about protecting Colston, which there's been very few, but some people have been very vocal, is, this, is the fact that their own, you know, they want to protect a, a private school, do they? Where most Bristolians can never go to. So it's a very strange thing. Again, it's a myth within a myth. So this charity school is actually a private school. So how did that happen? So that was something that always bugged me. You know, I thought, couldn't work out how that worked. And so I started to look into it. Plus the fact that Colston Girls School, which was also originally a private school, but had to join the state sector in around 2009, I think, um, mainly because there was failing after the economic crisis. They couldn't get enough people so to pay the fees. So they, they entered the state sector. But that was an opportunity for the merchant ventures to enter into academy schools. And they took over a whole group of schools in Bristol around that time. So the question then was, why not change the name of the state school or the whatever you might call an academy? Is it a public-private partnership? I'm not sure. But that was the school where there was pressure on to change the name. And we know now that, in fact, the Merchant Ventures suppressed a referendum between uh, amongst the pupils, the students, about to change the name. Uh, the headmaster asked for a, a referendum, but they, they're the governing body, and they said no. So he did his own referendum. And um, the results of that were unanimously in favour of changing the name of the school. That was the students who said that. Uh, unfortunately, that was suppressed as well, the result of that, which I would argue is somewhat damaging to students' education because that suggests that democracy is pointless. So um, there was, so at the time, so then the, the school made a statement, the Venturers Trust who run the schools made a statement about changing their name. And it was a very strange statement because it said, we're not going to change the name. Um, uh, we've kind of balanced up the arguments and we've decided that it would be wrong to change the name. They said, the school is really, you know, it's very much connected. To, so they, they, they worked very hard to connect themselves to Edward Colston. And I kept thinking to myself, hang on a minute, this school was built in the 1890s. It's like, it's, you know, 180 years after he died. So I don't think it was in his will, was it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He was already dead. So a long time dead. So how can it be really close to Edward Colston? So I, but all I did was, I mean, it's not rocket science. I just got the, the book, The History of the School, written by uh, Sarah Dunn, one of the, you know, one of the head, headmistresses of the school, uh, you know, a few years ago, a few decades ago. And it's a great book. I mean, well, I say it's a great book. I mean, actually, it was quite boring, most of it. But there was some great stuff in it. And what it showed was that Colston Girls School basically wasn't connected to Colston at all. Um, obviously, it was much later. But even more interesting was the fact that um, it was a product of the liberalisation and opening up of education. So what happened was in the 1870s, a, a Liberal government came to power. And um, one of the things they did was they were trying to expand education 
into some sections of the working class, particularly you know secondary education. And, and they were also interested in education for for girls, for, uh, particularly you know because that was that was that, that was a real problem at the time in terms of the education system. So what you had, what the first thing they had to do was look at what is education like in Britain. You know what what have we got? And of course they found that all over the place there was a whole load of you know kind of endowment schools. You know which were basically where philanthropists had put some money in and. They were all run on these, they're all different, you know, different kinds of archaic education systems. You know, obviously Colston's ones were really strict about, you know, religious education. And other ones had all sorts of, you know, foibles, which were all based on what the philanthropists wanted. So, uh, so what they did, they kind of realized this. So they set up a thing called the Endowed Schools Commission. And the job of that, of that body was to go around, survey all these schools, which were, it was just a total mess, you know. I mean, some of them were claiming to be charity schools and yet they were full of posh people. And, you know, so the idea was to go and survey your local area, send a, you know, send a, a kind of, um, not a, comic, a, a, a commissioner in, to a, to a city and who would then survey the education there, put a report back to the Endowed Schools Commission. But the Endowed Schools Commission had power. It, it did have clout. And the clout it had was, it said, basically, if you don't do what the Endowed Schools Commissioner says in terms of reorganising education, opening it up to other groups, particularly girls, then we will take control of your schools and we will take control of the endowments. And that was a serious amount of power. So when uh, so they sent a guy called Joshua Fitch to Bristol, and he's my hero. I mean, if, if the school should be named after anyone, it should be named after Joshua Fitch. I'm sure he really believed in education for women and girls, and a long history of working on that. So he, he, I'm sure he wouldn't have liked the name on it. But I was, I call it in my head, it's the Joshua Fitch School for Girls, right? Because he's the one who pushed that. So he turns up in a city, surveys these endowment schools, the Colstons. In, you know, uh, red maids, these old philanthropic schools. And um, he spends a while of time doing that. And then he puts out a report, which is absolutely damning. So it says, look, you know, first of all, <laughs> these are school, supposedly schools for poor boys. It's like, no, they're not. They're full of middle-class people. They're kids. And it's all run as a kind of uh, patronage situation where, you know, if you do something good for the merchant ventures, you get your kid in the school. So, so they weren't schools, you know, exposed all that, which kind of caught the merchant was red-handed. You know, it's like they would say, oh, don't leave our charity schools alone, they're for the poor, you know. And, and Fitch said, you know, well, no, it's not true. So that, that's the first thing. And then he said, if you don't open up the education, he reorganized, he said, right, we're going to open up these new schools, we're going to, you know, expand it all, we're going to get, look, we, the idea is to not, in, you know, not have these odd things, we're going to get rid of all these odd rules, and start to kind of rationalise and sort out education so it's available to a much wider group. And he said, we've got to have another girls' school. You've got to build... He said, if, if you, you either do what we say and build this school, or we'll take control of all the money. And the Merchant Ventures went crazy. I mean, they... They denounced him. Then they, they tried a press campaign against him. They, they were in negotiations for the best part of four years. And the merge ventures continually walked out. You know, it was, they tried everything they could to resist building a girls' school. They didn't want to do it, and they certainly were trying to resist him taking control. Um, and to cut a long story short, because it's a story, uh, Fetch, you know, wouldn't budge. He was like, "No, you're building this school. You're re we're reorganising education." Unfortunately, I think in about 1874, the Tories came to power again. And they stripped the Endowed Schools Commission of its powers, which is a real shame because I think, you know, British education could have been organised 
very, very quickly. And much better if that power had remained there. They kind of took his, power, his teeth away from it. But luckily, Joshua Fitch got into law before he left that they had to build this girls' school. And it, and it was, I think, within three years. And um, so anyway, they didn't do that. And there were calls over the years saying, hang on a minute, you've got to build this school. You know, <laughs> it's in the law. And they, again, they vacillated for about the best part of 20 years. And eventually, I think somebody reported them and said, look, you know, take them, they've got to, you know, you've got to take them to court now because like they've broken the law for 17 years or something, you know. And then they were forced to build this school, which became Colston Girls School. So the fact of the matter was, it was nothing to do with Edward Colston. They didn't want it in the first place. And all I did was wrote it down in the local paper. And then they reported me to the National Judicator for Education. <laughs> Uh, wow. Presumably, you were fully exonerated of any wrongdoings in in such a circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're very happy, but the irony was, of course, it was their own book. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So, I mean, yeah, thank you for that, Roger. I think you've given us a really good uh, distillation of uh, the way in which this institution has behaved. Um, you know, I think we'll probably need some time to really pack it all together into like a firm conclusion but you know the impression i get and based on my previous knowledge even before this interview is that you know there is unaccountable power here there there is a almost like well let's call it what it is a class interest that is not responsive to democratic sort of pressures and and they behave accordingly you know and this has had an impact on the real lives of ordinary people in bristol in particular children you know whereas they can provide this uh, luxury education for a privileged few um taking up space taking up resources I, it, it's just astonishing that it's so almost like um monolithic in the case of bristol you know like in other cities it's kind of you know um, it's morphed it's become you know different institutions but in bristol it's it's this one crew deciding what happens in these schools uh, and and I think their history speaks for itself in terms of well the the, the shabbiness and the sort of the claims to popular legitimacy. I I just I just think it's really good that people know this because and this is going to lead neatly to my next question. Unless uh, Tom or Lauren want to jump in with anything. Um, okay, I'm the one of the three of us, uh, four of us, sorry, currently speaking, that is not a historian or a history specialist. So I apologise if anything that I ask kind of seems a bit, a bit ridiculous or a bit like obvious. But I was kind of thinking about when you were talking about the resurgence of Colston as this kind of father of Bristol figure. And it seems like that coincides from what I know, like was a kind of pinnacle of um, colonialism and British empire. And I'm kind of wondering how how much uh, of that was quite a cynical move or, or if we think it might have been a massive cynical move by the merchant ventures in order to almost kind of further glorify and and sort of feed into that idea again of great British imperialism as opposed to kind of maybe the shadier, which we all know, the horrific side of it. I just wonder if that's something that... Yeah, you're right. I mean, um, that, that that's true. I mean, you're quite right about that, certainly towards, uh, you know, after about 1870. Um, I think it kind of, that end of it is fulfilled by the merchant prince sort of, um, you know, the way he's created or that, his representation as a merchant prince. I mean, I mean, you know, 
part of the sort of fundamental history of the Merchant Ventures is things like John Cabot, you know, sort of finding Newfoundland. And it's all part of this sort of, like, I mean, you can see it in the title, Merchant Ventures. I mean, it's about these this idea of these kind of explorer merchants, you know, who, you know, which went out, and, you know, in a way you could, you, you, you could sort of characterize that as exploratory colonialism or something, you know, okay. adventurer, you know, so, uh, so, th so that, that's part of their history. There's no doubt about that. And that's certainly, I mean, the joke about it, of course, is that a lot of the merchant ventures historically never stood up, you know, stepped on a ship. <laughs> they never went near a plantation you know they you know they ran it all from the bristol end you know they you know made lots of money built big houses you know created fake gentility and threw out crumbs of pop, uh, you know of charity around to the poor but i mean so they never got near a ship so it's a kind of representation as well i mean obviously a lot of them were actually you know were out in the caribbean and other places and had links with other parts of the colonies but so it's already embedded in there, that part of the history. And I, yeah, I suspect, I mean, I've, I have read some of the speeches around the time, you know, when they're, when Colston has been recreated and it is, it's just taken as read. But the fact of the matter is, is Bristol was in decline as a port really in that period. So it's becoming less and less real, you know, what they're talking about. I mean, they're, they're, they're diversifying, they're moving on to railways and, you know, and factories and that sort of stuff. They're not, you know, although some of them are running, you know, sort of colonial trading empires as well, it, it, Bristol is declining as a port. So it's kind of an odd thing. It's almost like trying to recreate the past, so, you know, the, the past glory of exploration and that. But yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that Colston's only one part of the story. And, um, you know, the, the reason, I mean, it's a, a number of local historians, you know, sort of said to us, why are you having to go to Colston? There's much worse slave traders. Well, I said, you know, Colston's a pretty bad one, but like you know, there are worse, nastier pieces of work than Colston who didn't give any money to anybody. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is they're not the icon of the city. So in a sense, they're not, you know, they, they are about, you know, you can find them. There are, there is some iconography of these slave traders and colonialists, but, but it's important to say that, the reason that Colston became the target is because they made him a target. You know, mm. we didn't create Colston, did we? They created, you know, they created Colston. <laughs> the question was, so he was the target. And that's why he's, you know, but the, the wider history is much, much deeper and richer than just Edward Colston, clearly. I mean, you know, and there's a lot more, you know, it's partly why we wrote the book, really. It was to try and, you know, start looking at these, this look a bit, a lot wider than, than, than Colston, though Colston's important within it. So I don't know if that really answer your question, not very well, but yeah, definitely there is the colonial link. But I think in Bristol's case, they were in decline. That's really interesting. Thank you. I mean, Roger, my, my take is that figures and myths like Colston are all part of like a patchwork of cultural touchstones that essentially celebrate like individualism or like the potential of what people can achieve under a sort of capitalist imperialist system you know if they're held up as look what this one man achieved what a hero it does have a you know I don't want to say brainwashing because it's not it's not like that but it's it's about what people are able to access in ideological terms how they see their own lives well if Edward Colston was a hard worker and did good things, then I shall be a hard worker and do good things. And it, it sort of holds up that possibility. Almost like it's the British version of the American dream is, is what I'd read there. Um, sorry, Lauren, did you have a follow-up question? question? No, I'd say it's really sorry, weird. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, sorry, I didn't say. Victorian individualism is really central. I mean, it's a conjunction of things. First of all, that rise of philanthropy. So, it's, you know, that appears in the mid 
period in the 1840s and 50s. The idea of the, the great man is not just a great businessman or a great politician or whatever, the great, you know, great you know, landowner or whatever. It's the, the great philanthropist appears at that time. You know, that you, and it's part of that whole Victorian system, no welfare, you know, charity, et cetera, et cetera. And you're quite right. And that goes right along with Victorian individualism. So you're quite right. So it's a pick this figure, you know, the self-made, you know, again, all nonsense. I mean, Colston's family are incredibly wealthy and powerful. <laughs> Colston's dad was in charge of Bristol under the Royalists in the English Civil War. So the idea that he was some sort of self-made figure is like kind of, ridiculous like you know but and they're very close to the royal family you know they were absolute staunch loyalists you know royal, loyalists and royalists if you know what i mean so so there's a lot of again it's the it's the idea of the victorian individual quite right about that um something that again proper basic question um but it, it's one of those things i think um you hear people saying a lot about this whole thing like trying to sort of counter it in a way which is yeah but we can't hold people up to the same standards that we hold ourselves up to now you know etc etc people didn't know any different then now when i was doing again, a bit of my again my bit of research about um colston and again the realization that the statue got put, what is it, 65 years after the abolition of slavery in the UK? Is that correct or am I wrong? Oh, cool, right. So I'm kind of still under the assumption that if we'd abolish this practice 65 years before that statue got put up, surely this idea that people did not know it was wrong and people, you know, didn't have a general idea that, yeah, actually it was pretty dark, um surely that that's just wrong that that whole idea that we can't the statue went up because people thought it was okay i mean am i right i, I don't know You're, no you are right and it's a good question and it really that boils down to like how aware were people that he was a slave trader and if they were aware was that a problem <laughs> so i think the answer to that question is is that they certainly didn't go on about it when in the eight in the mid-century or 1850s 60s when they start to recreate him or reinvent him they're not making, they're not talking about that. But what is interesting is, and they certainly, the apologists didn't want to talk about it at all in the time that I've been in Bristol. You know, they, they try to avoid it all the time. But the interesting thing is, is that when, on the, when they unveiled the statue on the, in the, on the day, you know, where there was the crowds there, I mean, it was the mayor was speaking and, you know, Arrowsmith's whose idea it was, and Merchant Ventures and others were elite around the statue. And the, spe- the you know, the the, um, the the mayor made a speech, and in that he said, "Oh, you know, he's you know, he's a great man, la la la." But he also said, "Oh yeah, and he, you know, and he was directly connected to the West India trade." Now that's code for slave trade, really, or at least it. It's partly to do with that, but it's certainly a reference. So it's interesting that I was very surprised when they said that, because I thought, well, actually, we're being a little bit more blatant than perhaps a lot of the apologists have been over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, they've actually... So that, I, I suspect they were they were aware, but I think the majority of the population weren't, because they probably, you know, I mean, it wasn't being propagated that he was a slave trader. So ordinary people will, probably wouldn't have known that. They would have known, for example, that... You know, he he you know, he gave money and they all these stories and you know, he's a philanthropist. They would have known all of that, but because that was in the newspapers, everybody was talking about it. But so it may have been obscured amongst the population. But let's put it this way, you know, I I doubt very much that the people who were in those societies, the Colston societies, which there were four, and those kind of people knew nothing. 
I mean, they must have known something. I find it very surprising that they didn't. Um, as I said, you know, the key moment is the 1920 when the Reverend Wilkins brings this book out, which which kind of, you know, he did a lot, a hell of a lot of primary source research, saved me an awful lot of time, I can tell you that, <laughs> um, going through all sorts of obscure records. But he, you know, he basically came out and publicised it. And, it, you know, so I would say it's been, it, the information has been there properly for 100 years. Obviously, if you go back to the 18th century, they knew it was a slave trader. You know, but if you come into the Victorian period, they attempt to obscure that. So it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I think, I, I, I don't, let's put it this way. I'm sure the enlightened working classes in the 1880s and 1890s, the trade unionists, you know, and all the people who, you know, who were starting to reassess the city and the power structures and all stuff like that, I think they would have been very suspicious of, <laughs> of Edward Colston and the Ventures and what they were up to. So I don't know. The answer to the question is we don't know how much people knew about it. We, but we know after 1920 people knew about it. But even then it was it was not talked about after the 1920s. You know, you, you find points in history where people come in and write something in a newspaper or say, hang on a minute, you know. And really the book that made a big difference in the, in, in the modern period is, um, is A Shocking History of Bristol by Derek Robinson. Yeah, th- this one, sorry. <laughs> I was about to reference it. Sorry. That's the, it changed the name when it came out with the other version. Now, what's interesting, I've, I've asked a few historians in the sea, including people like Madge Dresser and one or two others who've obviously written a lot about slavery. And I say to them, what's the most influential book in the modern period, you know? And they all have to admit that it's like the shocking history or darker history of Bristol, which was published in 1973 originally. And I've got to say, Derek Robinson, I mean, it's a very populist book, isn't it? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not an academic book or anything like that. Very, in fact, that's why it was successful. But he doesn't pull his punches in there. You know, he, he, he says some things which are very prophetic. So, for example, at one, one point he says, you know, when all the pupils from the schools, uh, the Colston School and Colston Girls School, go down to the Charter Day and the Commemoration Day at the Cathedral, and when they, and when they kneel, you know, down and throw the chrysanthemums, a symbol at the statue, or, you know, they worship him, you know, maybe these kids need to be told about the slave trade. And that is exactly Sorry. where we started in 2014, 2015. We didn't bother with statues or pictures or names of streets, anything. What we were directly interested, Karen Colston were interested in, was why are they still doing these physical rituals and celebrations which involve school children en masse going down there to listen to what a great bloke Edward Colston is. That's where we started. So a lot of people have thrown stuff us over the years. Say, oh, you wanted to, you know, today they're taking the, you know, the window out of the cathedral, apparently, you know, which is absolutely nothing to do with us. And they wanted to make us, you know, rip the statue down and build it. We're terrible, you know, but we weren't interested in that. We started with, hang on a minute, you're not telling the truth to all these children. This is bad. This has been going on for a long time and it's very bad. And in fact, it, the original protest came about because um, somebody put a complaint into the Church of England past, you know, saying that their priests are lying. Um, I mean, Roger, just to jump in here, uh, I actually attended Colston School as, as, as a, uh, you know, a government-assisted place. This was like, um, I don't even think it was paid for by the merchant venturers. I think it was a Tory government policy. Oh, did you go to China and all that then? Indeed I did. And oh, right. there you go. Will you tell us about it? <laughs> well, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into it now, but um 
as a 12-year-old kid stood in Bristol Cathedral, I just instinctively knew there was something a bit wrong about a load of school kids saying prayers for a private institution. You know, it was special prayers for special people. And it just, it bore no resemblance to the Christianity that I was learning about, you know, in the Bible and stuff. It was just jarring. I mean, the whole experience was jarring because I came from fish ponds. You know, I probably shouldn't have been there, but, um, you know, you you know what I'm saying. So you're absolutely right. And I think that's why Countering Colston's had such, you know, punch through because it's, it's going to the heart of the matter you know like so I, I just thought I'd uh, offer my input and in that I've I've seen the rituals I've been a part of them and I and that's great because I've never got in there you know I mean I'm not allowed in there so so I've never actually seen them you know and and I know I, I think some ex there's some ex CGS pupils in our group and they they managed to get in as old girls um into the, commem- the commemoration day so we're talking about different events here there are Around this, there's a kind of period in Bristol between November the 1st and November the 13th. Uh, Colston's birthday um, is now technically on the 13th of November. And that whole period, as I said in the past, had all these rituals. And some of those survived, you know, right the way through. So you get the, well, there's the Charter Day, which celebrates the Merchant Ventures Charter, which happens around that time. There's the Commemoration Day, which is the CGS um, event, you know, where they got the, to commemorate the school's founder in Colston and all that. There's also events in Samaria Redcliffe Church and Temple. There's like a weird thing that stopped. We kind of stopped actually, or helped stop, which was where the Merchant Ventures um, at the same time marched down on group, in a big group with their top hats and tails. It looks like something out of Downton Abbey on tour or something. But um, they marched down <laughs> Corn Street to a church and they didn't have 100 years. That's actually stopped now. There's a church that we're not celebrating in Colston anymore. Um, but there was, so there was a whole load of those rituals and, and it's amazing. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I saw this march a few years ago and I was like, this is like really weird that this is still going on. You know? So, so it, it, it's very interesting to meet somebody who's actually been into the ceremonies. We've heard about the CGS. I haven't heard so much about Charter Day, to be honest. Well, like, uh, you know, I think I'm going to expand on this outside of this interview because uh, we want to just make sure that your time isn't spent listening to me, although I'm sure you're very interested. Um, Tom, you raised your hand. Did you want to come in with a question? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for that, Roger. I've learned a huge amount there. And yeah, I think I'm not, I'm not unlikely, I'm not a Bristolian. I'm an outsider as well. So yeah, when I moved to Bristol, I did find kind of this kind of shady organisation, the Merchant Ventures existing quite anachronistic and strange so i've got a couple of questions but my first one is why why this group why this organization and why bristol what are like the historical quirks which mean that there is still to this day this tudor era organization that still has such wield such influence well i think if it had remained yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the important thing to say is, is that it's what what is this organisation? How does it function? And on one level, it's, as I said originally, it was a cartel. You know, really, that's what it was. It was like, a, it was a group of merchants making sure that smaller merchants couldn't encroach on their markets and their business. So that's what it really is. Um, but 
through the process of slavery, they become, you know, these people would be a member of the Merchant Ventures, but they would also be, you know, part of the magistracy, there would be major landowners, they would be businessmen, they would be traders, you know, or top level merchants. They'd also be involved in the political process. So I think the part of the reason that the organisation survived is that it actually, first of all, fused itself into serious economic and political power in Bristol. Um, and there's a really, as again, I mentioned Spencer Jordan, particularly his PhD. Um, he looks at 19 organisations of the elite in the city in a very detailed study and shows, you know, that, you know, if you're in the merchant venture, you know, that's the number one. You, you, you know, if you want to you get things done in Bristol in the 18th, 19th century, you've got to be in the merchant ventures. And funnily enough, there was, just as an aside, there was a split in, in the mid-19th century where clearly it was where clearly on a political basis people got really fed up of the corruption the nepotism and the power that was wielded by the merchant ventures you know i mean basically you know you couldn't get anything done i mean if they didn't want you to do something they you didn't happen so what they did is they set the chamber of commerce up to try and combat the merchant ventures it was like another bunch of businessmen trying to create their own organization because they'd been left out so there has been some challenges, but what my point is, is that precisely because they wielded power and they did become, as a, as a group, it, that organisation survived. And it, then you get the Victorian reinvention of Colston and all of this stuff and the Colston societies, all the rituals and stuff like that. And it retains, it becomes, you know, more of a charitable body. But the key thing about the charity that's really important to understand, particularly was spotted in the Victorian period, was that they were somewhat irrelevant in terms of the amount of money they raised. So, for example, at their height of their civic power in the 1870s, I think 1870s, 1880s, they were only providing 1.5% of the relief for the poor that was required. So they have this huge public face, you know, massive rituals and commemorations. They, they, they dominate the lands, the memorial landscape, they dominate the, that lands, you know, that kind of cultural and historical landscape, yet they're kind of not really doing anything useful. And in fact, you know, there's, there's cartoons, there's a few cartoons that are critical of them saying, you know, like, you know, we've got all these problems, mass unemployment and poverty, and along comes, you know, there's a picture of Colston actually standing there with a little money box going, here's your money. You know, and, and the mayor is like, going, oh, my God, you know, like, we can't deal with these problems. See you later, Mr. Colston, you're irrelevant. So, you know, the whole point was, of course, Victorian charity gets found out by the end of the century. And you need a welfare state, don't you? Because, I mean, you just can't do it. And it's distributed unequally. It's incompetent. You know, it's like nepotism everywhere. You know, So, so I think as a charitable body, that's how they would portray themselves now, definitely. And that certainly, they, I would say their power has lessened. But it's interesting, a study was done by um, some supporters of Marvin Rees before he got elected in, in 2016. Uh, that's the elected mayor of Bristol. And what they did was they, they did a, a survey of the power structures in the city for him. And what was interesting was I, I spoke to one of the researchers who did that and she said, I never realized how wide and how diverse the merchant ventures, you know, influences. So she said, I, you know, I realized it was civic and cultural and arts as patronage. 
Then I realized it was education because they run the, all these schools and now in the state sector as well. She said, but I didn't know they were involved in healthcare. <laughs> so she actually isolated them as the most important um, formal or informal body uh, in the city. So that was in what, 2016, 2015, 2016. So they've survived and they, and, you know, and they've become this charity, you know, they're maintaining this charitable image. Now, I, I'm not claiming some big conspiracy here or anything. I think the fact of the matter is, purely in terms of its sordid history, the organisation should have gone about 100 years ago. But the fact that it's still in there, undemocratic, unelectable, and kind of having influence, whether for, you know, they, I'm sure they think they're doing good things a lot of the time, but... You know, the fact of the matter is, I, I don't think that's how you should be running the arts, education or, or healthcare, to be honest. Um, no, Roger, I think you raise a perfect point, which comes on to the next thing I want to discuss. I mean, I think an institution like the Society of Merchant Venturers has proven very useful to wider forces of neoliberalism and the drive towards marketizing education, uh, putting what was previously state institutions into private hands. The Merchant Venturers and the Academy system has perfectly dovetailed. And and if if anything, I think uh, the existence of academies has uh, allowed uh, the merchant venturers to sort of morph again. They sort of evolved into what is now a more seemingly respectable institution, something like the Venturers Trust. They can position themselves as, you know, uh, experts in state education. Uh, they, they, you know, they know what they're doing, apparently. So I, I did want to, I, I, I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but I did want to get your take on you know, what has the role of wealth and power been in shaping this new style of state school governments that we see today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you're right. And I, I mean, obviously, if you, to be honest, if you put a load of businessmen together, mostly businessmen, I would argue, there's very few women in the organisation, obviously, you know, not diverse at all. If you put a load of businessmen together, they're hardly going to be like, you know, sort of a bastion of the welfare state, are they? I mean, you know, it's, it's not surprising that they're, you know, they're kind of the way they behave and the neoliberal sort of, uh, you know, positions they take or encourage. That's not a surprise, is it really? I mean, you put, you know, put powerful businessmen together, they're not going to come in with a socialist program, are they? So, you know, so that, that I think is a product of who they are. That's the first thing. But you're quite right. It's one thing to have those views. It's another thing to start interfering in healthcare and, and uh, education and, and all that stuff with neoliberal sort of uh, you know policies, effectively. And that's what they. So you're right. I mean, it, that's that's the bit. I mean, a lot of people are very unhappy about them getting involved in the state sector in education. You know, there was there's been a lot of opposition over the years. You know, and and I think. Uh, Again, the, the problem was is that if you supported public-private finance initiatives, then there's the private bit, isn't there? And they've got a lot of money. So as an organisation, they've got a lot of historic money, uh, you know, which is tied up in land and, and stuff like that. But they, they have got a lot of money. I mean, the problem is, is you, there's no transparency with them because they're a chartered organisation, a chart, you know, royal charter. You can't see their books. So we don't know what they're worth. And it's, that's another problem, you know, it's like understanding, you know, how important are they really? I mean, they might be, you know, they might be a complete paper tiger, might they? You know, they might not have all this money, but we know that we suspect and what we know is, is that there's an awful lot of money tied up in there, which is historic. So that carries weight, doesn't it? And that carries weight if you're going to do public-private type initiatives. 
the second point I think is really important, is, which is that do these people know how to run schools in the state sector? And my, my argument, first of all, is, or my suggestion is, and I think a lot, you know, certainly the educationists I know, would say, well, the vast majority of them have never been to a state school, for starters. So that's a bad start. Uh, the way they behave, they kind of run, they keep getting caught out legally. I mean, they break the law all the time in these academy schools around selection, around exclusion, all sorts of stuff, you know. So it's lucky we've got, you know, campaigners who don't get paid, but who monitor what they're doing in these schools. And one of the things you see is things like, you know, they, they kind of set prep schools up. You can't set a prep school up in the state sector because you have a group of schools and they all have a right to send their kids to a secondary school. You can't, you can't tell parents, oh, if you go to this school, then you'll go to Colston Girls School. They do things like that. They fiddle around with statistics consistently. So the bell curves for selection and attainment for the schools, you know, they you know, get caught out cheating all the time. They use tactics around things like religion, you know, religious schools to try and expand their intake of pupils to not have to take into account inner city kids you know so the whole thing is really much you know you do wonder what is their philosophy of education i suggest it's kind of similar to the private sector you know, in public schools and the way they work and that's what they understand so i think um you know <laughs> i mean i i quote just one very well-informed source who was a senior uh, in a senior part of their um, structure who said the other problem we have with them is, is they have no humility and they're much more interested in defending their reputation than the reputation of merchant ventures than they are interested in educating young people. So I think that's another problem, which is that the organisation is more worried about its image than it is about actually delivering good education. And in fact, they've taken over major state schools that, and they have failed. You know, I mean, for example, the Merchants Academy, <laughs> they don't have problem changing the name of schools if they're not named after slave traders. <laughs> They'll change them all the time. Uh, but that used to be Withywood School. They took it over. And it's, you know, most of the institutions they've taken over have failed. So they, they're not even, you know, so all of the blather that, you know, with the start of the academy system, they, they pretty much failed to do what they've done. And they've spent the rest of the time trying to protect schools like CGS and get the right kind of pupil that they want in there. So I don't think it's, I think it's a pretty, pretty bad, you know, sort of record. <laughs> they haven't really done anything and they've been there a while now. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I think their record is bad. Their philosophy is questionable. And the fact the organisation probably gets in the way of them actually delivering education. So, Thank you for that, Roger. Um, a couple of final questions then, because obviously, you know, you're a historian, me and Tom are history teachers, and we do like to discuss, you know, pedagogy and issues of curriculum. Um, you know, we, we see that the same centres of wealth and power, you know, not necessarily the Society of the Merchant Ventures, although they have complete control over the curriculums in their school, but written large, you know, you've got an organisation like the Conservative Party, you know, thinking about their reforms to the national curriculum from 2010 onwards. Um, how have you viewed you know, in particular, the history curriculum. I mean, is it up? Is it fit for purpose in the current climate? Uh, how well is the government directing the students of the present to learn about the sort of hidden histories that we've been learning about today? Well, it's funny. We've been, we've been doing a lot of work recently with teachers preparing, you know, uh, sort of our history projects as as pack, information packs that they can download. Um, 
so we're right in the middle of the process. It's been very, very interesting speaking to teachers over the last year. Um, and one of the things that came across, I mean, one, one great teacher said to me, like, you know, he said, well, look, look, look what they're doing, the Gove and all this, you know, what's their game? You know, they, the, the problem they've had is teaching history around, you know, the empire and colonialism, imperialism. That's, that's one of their big bugbears on the right. And they're, they're basically like, we don't need to learn about that, you know. So what? So he said, well, their strategy's been is, is like, okay, we've got this problem. You know, we don't want to go out there. We don't want to go out there anymore. We don't want to go global and the British Empire because it's really problematic. So let's go local. So recently they pushed this whole, like, let's do local history <laughs> as their way of getting around this problem and dealing with, with the empire. Well, to be honest, that's somewhat naive in itself, as you can imagine, as thinking about its history teachers or whatever, which is that, of course, if you go local, you end up national and you end up global. If you're in a port city like Bristol, it's hard to go local without going global. <laughs> so that's the first problem. The second thing that's interesting is, is that, of course, when you start going local, I mean, this teacher rubbed his hands and said, ha ha, I'm going local now. And he said, and I ain't going to like it. And the reason, of course, is, is that, you know, Bristol Radical Institute's been, although we're not exclusively focused, we've been very much focused on the history of Bristol and hidden histories of Bristol. So it's it's a kind of a double-edged sword here, I think, um, in the sense that they may have got around the problem of colonialism and slavery and all that, you know, teaching around that to a certain degree, but they're now stuck with the local. And that actually has more resonance in some ways and more power. So if you un so if you uncover stories locally, in some ways they have more resonance. I all just to say one other thing. I think I'm just going to echo a pupil who <laughs> he's a mate of mine now, and he's done a degree at Ruskin, you know, and stuff like that. But he left school without any qualifications. And I met him when he was probably 19 or 20, and he's funny enough. He's from Fish Ponds, where you're from, and uh, he said. Um, the problem I had at school, he said, was that they did talk, teach about slavery, he said, but it was always, he's white, okay, but he's, you know, he's actually in a mixed family, but he's white. And he said, the problem is, is that at school, it was like, you did slavery, and he said, obviously, that related to BAME, BAME kids, like particularly obviously African Caribbean kids, right? He said that related to them. And we learned about it. He said, but slavery, the problem was, it seemed to be like slavery. And then there was like the slave traders. And he said, is that me? You know, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm white. Does that mean I'm a slave trader? He said, that's the problem. What about my history? And what he was really saying was, is that, you know, what about, you know, taking a class analysis of Bristol and, and looking at different groups of people in their history. And that's been one of the big problems that's come about in the last few years in particular, which is that the, the I mean, obviously, I totally support the emphasis on race and colonialism, very important, but actually there's a massive lacking of working class history and studies of working class movements and stuff like that, you know, and that is what these kids were looking for. They wanted to define themselves as Bristolians as well and have a history and not be a bunch of rich people up in Clifton. <laughs> so I think that's important. That's part of the game as well. Yeah, if I could ask a question there, Roger. Um, kind of linked to what you've put, uh, what you, the point you've just made. Um, my question is kind of what do we do next? Because I think as educators, um, all of us here, I'd say educators, we've got this massive opportunity. We make many of us, I certainly have a little bit more free time now to kind of think forward about my teaching and my practice, what I do in the classroom. But I think that kind of statue coming down was such a big 
symbolic moment, uh, a moment of resistance. Like I think it was a democratic act and it was undertaken by the black working, black and the working class in Bristol to, to do it. Um, and I think the thing I think really inspiring about it is when you think about the years of struggle, not even to get rid of it, but just to get a plaque on it, acknowledging historical reality. The thing that sticks with me is just how easy it was. Like, was it a few bits of rope, I don't know, half a dozen people, a few yanks, and it's gone and you roll it and dump it in the dock. It was, it was amazing. Um, what can we do? What should our curriculum kind of look like going forward? How can we kind of emphasise black history, in particular black agency? She talked about if you, um, obviously I'm white, but I imagine if you were a black student and all you learn about black history is the slave trade, what are you really being taught there that black people are victims? And I think, yeah, linked to that, what should we be learning about, about kind of local working class history as well? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things there that are important. The first thing is, is that, you know, we've, right from the start of our recent campaigning, and certainly in, in the time we've been in Bristol Radical History Group, we've refused to um, isolate West African slavery as the only forced labour that was operating in the period or around that period. So we use this term forced labour to en encapsulate a whole load of different kinds of coerced labour. So chattel slavery, debt peonage, indentured labour, penal labour, you know, all, all of those things, various types of bondage, serfdom, we've tried to say, okay, we, we're, we're going to call these forced labour. And that's important because the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, prior to the expansion of West African slave trade, you know, these, I mean, I think the question I ask students sometimes, which is kind of shocking, you know, if we have student university students, we take them on a walk, or even school students, I'll say, who thinks the merchants went down to Africa because they were racists? And I think this is a really important question to think about, because the fact of the matter is, is that those merchants and plantations, the plantocracy people, what they wanted was labour. That's what they were after. They needed people to work on their plantations and create the commodities that they were going to sell to make lots of money. And initially, they would go, they would get anybody they could. So they grabbed vagrants, orphans, you know, prisoners of war, anybody they could get their hands on that, to ship them out to the plantations. In fact, Halston's brother-in-law, the mayor of Bristol, was directly involved in that, kidnapping people. So I think it's important to frame the history together. And now that doesn't mean equalizing suffering or trying to say it was all the same or anything like that, but it's understanding the dynamics of the period. Now, and, and also understanding why, you know, the ideology of racism arose. And I would argue that it comes about because, partly because of the abolitionists. So the more that people challenge things like slavery, the more that there had to be an ideological justification for it. And I think that's very important to understand the development of racism. And the reason for that is, is because it starts to then, start the story does include lower classes in Bristol, you know, people like that as part of the story, which they were, you know, I mean, they basically, they, 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 they couldn't get enough people, they couldn't force enough people into, into labour in Britain, despite the terrible poverty of the 17th century, and neither could they, when they got there, they didn't survive very long, these people. I mean, your know, chances of survival as an indentured labourer is about, you know, 60%. So four out of 10 died within seven years, you know. You know, so there's, it's understanding that. And that brings other people into the equation. 
And one way to undermine the far right is to say, basically, you're standing up for this bloke who might have put you on a ship and had you as a penal labourer or as an indentured servant yourself, and you might have ended up out there. So don't go on about this as being a black and purely a black and white issue. And it's very interesting that merchant ventures over the years have pushed this position. So they always say, oh, we were all in it together. Everybody in Bristol was doing slavery. Everybody was at it. You know, we're all at it. You know, we, everybody was involved. Bristol got money. Everybody did well out of it. It was terrible because it was racist. But that, that position is a very particular position to take in order to defend yourselves and to, to put you amongst, you're almost pulling a race card, which is very interesting because that could also be understood as an argument for some sections of the radical sort of Black Lives Matter movement will also say that as well. The, quest, the fact of the matter is, of course, history is more complicated than that and, in fact, more inclusive than that. In the sense that you know that you know you could have been an indentured labourer, you could have been a penal labourer, you could have been, you know, and that's important. So I know I've gone on about this, but I think it's a really important point that opening up the history allows opportunities as well. It allows opportunities to really look at how do these systems operate, who was making the money, who was organising it. You know, I mean, the first thing I think you say to students is things like, well, you know, we got democracy, full enfranchisement in 1928. So how did the population have any say over anything really until 1928? So how can you then say that everybody was equally responsible and it's a European crime or something? You've got to be careful about these terms. I mean, I... I'd also want to make a point as well, because like thinking about my own history education at school um, and also like when you learn quite a lot of focus when we talk about civil rights um, and rights that have been won for black people for, you know, in terms of equality, it's always done from a really US lens. Now, I recently did a project um, at the place where I work and one of my focuses on was on how um, equal rights have been fought for over time by various groups of people, like LGBTQ plus people, for example. Um, and I was then doing a lot of research and then came across the Bristol bus boycotts, which is amazing. It's, you know, and, and I, what I really kind of, one thing that really struck with me is I believe that, wasn't it the 1965 Race Relations Act um, came out on the same day that Martin Luther King Jr. did his I Have a Dream speech. I'm pretty sure that's what I read. And again, and I just think that idea as well, though, of, of civil rights being taught through US lens in UK schools, I think takes it away from being a UK problem. It's like, oh, it doesn't really happen here. It's not as bad here as it is in the US. Look, you know, look at all this. And it is, everyone should learn about it. But I was never told about the Bristol bus boycotts. Like, I had no idea that this even happened. I mean, I didn't grow up in Bristol, so obviously that's... But even so, surely one of the most important pieces of, of legislation in terms of, like, race relations and, and, and start of it, the process of not that we've got there yet, equality. Um, why am I... Like, why was I not taught about that as a kid? Like, why is it I knew... I mean, it, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think... I mean, one of the tenets of Bristol Radical History Group is that we don't just, you know, challenge establishment histories, expose industries. We always say we also go back and look at radical histories and, and critique them as well. And in a sense, that's part of things like looking at race riots in 1919. I mean, I, I don't use that term lightly. I have a very clear de definition. That's where a majority population attacks a minority group. That's a race riot. And those things did happen in 1990. It's very important to understand 
because obviously those periods have often been looked at as greatly very progressive periods you know where if a trade unionist and strikes and attempts to you know to expand you know sort of political and democratic control over over you know the means of production or whatever so so you're right i mean there's been a tendency to try and uh you know sort of not necessarily ignore those things but to de-emphasize them and they are very important and i think the bristol bus boycott is very important because it i'm sure i think it, it i think what what's missing from the boycott story is the fact that they didn't look wider at lots of other struggles that were going on in trade unions you know amongst you know black people trying to get into positions of power in trade unions the whole thing around grumwicks and asian workers a whole history of of day-to-day -day attempts to try and improve conditions and deal with racism you know but i but i also so, so the boycott tends to become the symbolic thing uh but there's a, a much wider history which has not been told and we really need to get on with it with, uh, you know because people are starting to die now <laughs> you know they're getting older you know involved in those things if you look at the windrush generation you know but not just the windrush generation, i'm talking about people in the trade unions who fought to get you know, there wasn't, you know, this solidarity that was shown between people, but also to face up to racism and stuff like that. And the fact that people were excluded in, you know, amongst the Labour Party, amongst the trade unions, other things, you know, it was there. It was part of the equation. And I, I, I think it's not to start, you know, it's important that history's out there, but I also think it's important to understand how people work through those relationships. You know, I've always felt that, Probably one, I did, ironically, one of the most productive periods in this country for, in terms of what you might call, I mean, I don't like the word race because it doesn't exist, but anyway, mm -hmm. scientifically, but let's talk about ethnicity, but dealing with the problems of ethnicity in the 1970s is that it might have been a rough period in schools, but kids did go to school together and they did work these things through one way or another. <laughs> so I think, you know, the real solution to the problems of racism is not to separate people. You know, not to keep them apart. I mean, I'm very much opposed to religious schools. I think that's a big mistake. And I think that, you know, yeah. because I think kids need to be together where they live in particular. Now, we have other problems with the private education system and divisions in society, which as teachers, you can't do anything about. But, you know, obviously you need to abolish the private school system and you need to have a school which you go to locally, etc. I mean, we're, we're, we're working on it, you know. <laughs> It's like, well, no, we have to deal with them half the time. But, you know, but I think there's, there's major structural change that need to happen. But I think, I think part of that process is, I think that's gone backwards in some ways. I think, you know, comprehensive education, for all of its faults, you know, whatever they were, did throw everyone in together and they had to work it out. And I think, so to say that, for example, looking at Bristol and say, oh, it, it's miles better now in terms of racism, which, or at least we're not like the America, America is, is, you know, these things don't go in, in straight lines. And, you know, there, there are some ex, ex, great examples of anti-racist activity during the Second World War, for example, when American GIs were here. You know, it's very interesting. So there were periods that were much more um, progressive and tolerant. And there are other periods that were totally intolerant, you know, like the 1960s, you know, and, and Asian migration and early 70s and things like that. So I think it doesn't go in straight lines and it's never a done deal, is it? I mean, you don't sit there and go, oh, yeah, it's all right. You know, <laughs> America, you know. I mean, clearly, I think the biggest problem, I'm really glad you brought that point up, is, is that I think one of the big issues is around identity politics, which has come out of the US. And the first thing about, you know, I've been to the US a lot. I mean, I've you know, lived out there and all sorts of stuff. But one thing I'd say about the US, the first thing to realize is that structure, in terms of structural racism, there are significant differences. 
And I think, you know, one, for example, is, is that, you know, when the history group's been over doing talks in America, it was great for some of the young Bristolians who came with us, you know, to do stuff. You know, they went to Baltimore and they went to a, a shopping mall in Baltimore. I remember, you know, this kiddie from Fishponds again, he said, um, he said, it's so different. He said, because people think St. Paul's and Bristol is, is, you know, a black area when it's probably about... 30% BAME, you know what I mean? It, historically, it's not, you know, we call it a black area. There are some black people living there, you know. But in America, when you say it's a black area or something like that, you're talking about 95% of the population. They, I mean, they said, we're walking around this mall, we didn't see a white face, you know. And they realized immediately the differences. They, in America, you have got massive segregation, you know, economic, historical, political segregation as well. Uh, you know, segregation around housing. And so these are really immediate things. If you go to America, you realize, isn't it? I mean, you suddenly go, hang on a minute. You know, I'm not talking about going to New York. I'm talking about going to Philadelphia or some West Philly or going to Baltimore or going to Pittsburgh or wherever. There's massive segregation. So I think that, and, and historically, there's a different, there are different processes underway. Um, that's not to say it's better here. It's just, I think there's a difference there are differences, which I think we have to frame anti-racist politics from where we stand. I think, and, and, it, and that's, and there are lessons to be learned. You know, it's not like, oh, it was terrible in the 60s and 70s. No, it, there were good things that happened in the 60s and 70s. I mean, the social planners of comprehensive education wanted to integrate people. You know, they, 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 well, they believed in assimilation, but actually the way the kids integrated was quite different to what they expected. Uh, I mean, you might, for example, say, and this is controversial, but, you know, that, that integration, how those kids work through the issues around race on the ground in the schools may have been reflected by the fact that the 1981 riots were against the police and weren't race riots, for example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people look at riots in the US, they normally, up until very recently, they always regard them as being completely ethnically segregated. So if it's a riot, it's black people, people of colour doing it, you know. That's what they do. You know, you never see people together. You never see white and black people rioting together in America. Of course, you actually did see that in Minneapolis the other night. But also in Britain, that's the story. You know, I mean, the, the right, riots in Britain are rarely, you know, one ethnicity. Very rarely, in fact. So there is a diff there are different processes operating here, I think. A little bit, there's, a, I think, just structurally in inner cities, it's less segregated. But... That doesn't mean there's other issues, I think, here. I'll shut up now, but, you know. No, it's just, it's interesting. It's just that... I, I, yeah, that's really interesting, and thank you for making that point. And I, I just think I, I kind of it's the idea that sometimes we can lull ourselves into a full sense of security because it's not as bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, this idea that because it's not as bad, oh, well, it's okay, what are you moaning about? Um, but, yeah, that's really interesting. Thank yeah. you. I don't. I think. It's just, I think it's the difference, and and that's the point where we've got to start analysing what's happened in this country. So let's look at let's look at the effect of comprehensive education on integration, and how that was a two way process. It wasn't. You know, this is really important to migrants to say, look, you don't come in here and get. A, you know, obviously the the right wing always want you to be assimilated, don't they? You know, into. But but the point is, is that the experience of the sixties and seventies is not assimilation. It's kind of a, a reciprocal process, a culturally reciprocal process, you know, and that's that's interesting because that puts the migrant on the map, the culture of the migrant on the map, doesn't it? I mean, you know, it's like you know, I know, you know, my I was a punk rocker when I was younger, and it was great to hear, you know, 
people like the Sex Pistols saying like you know uh, you know that we we were because we were brought up in relatively low income white working class states. There were loads of black kids around, so so we were influenced by the music. Went to their parties, you know, they were great parties. You know, the, the idea that the white working class was completely divided in the 60s and 70s is not true. You know, the Clash did the same thing, or you know, Paul Simonon and you know people like that. You know, we 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 loved the music, and there were these crossovers. So I think. It's saying to the migrant, you know, you're going to bring something to the, the table and it's all going to get meshed together. It's not going to be one or the other, you know. And I think that's an important part and a positive part of our history. And don't think it was always, I'm not saying it was a nice process all the time. There was plenty of scrapping going on and all sorts of stuff. But it's all part of the process of working through the issue of ethnicity and, mi- and being a migrant. So, I mean, if we're going to draw this to a conclusion, I think, you know, there is an urgent task upon educators and just every citizen more widely. You know, we need a history that is informed with these nuances, with these subtleties, because the narratives that we extract from history are the lens through which we see the world today. And they inform our priorities about what we should be trying to change, what we should be trying to improve. So I just want to, you know, I just want to extend our massive gratitude to you, Roger, because you've, you've chucked out a ton of really interesting stuff for us to digest. I'm just going to give my co-hosts a chance to chime in with anything, if there's anything we want to, any loose ends we want to tie up? Uh, no, I'd just like to say simply, yeah, as a, as a history teacher, I feel incredibly inspired. I think, and Lee might agree with me, being a history teacher is a constant state of, I should do this better, I should do this differently, I should do this in a fresh way, in a more explicitly anti-racist and in a more inclusive way. So, yeah, um, I've left with a lot of food for thought and a lot of things I'm going to take back into the classroom when we do eventually get back into the classroom. So, yeah, just thank you so much for giving us your time, Roger. Yeah, uh, I also want to echo that success exactly the same thing like you know as someone who's not a historian um you know i think i i find it fascinating i think it's really important that we learn these things as well um and also i think another point that i kind of want to make as well is it's not just down to history teachers um to be doing this like i know certainly um when i've been doing some bit of research into like i'm a science teacher you know, things about around ethics and then, for example, the Henrietta Lacks story, that's a story that comes up quite a lot and things like that and how we shouldn't just rely on our history teachers to do that, but also thank you so, so much for, like, giving me a massive bit of education. <laughs> just saying I'm not a historian is a funny thing. First of all, I was an aircraft engineer for 25 years, right? So I've never done... I didn't do history at, at, at O-level, GCSE or A-level or anything. So I have no background in history until I did a PhD on part-time and two, well, apart from being involved in the history group and learning a lot of stuff. So my point is, is that, you know, I think it's really important. Everybody's a historian if they want to be one. And it's not a closed subject, you know, it's an open subject. You can go and do, your, you know, doing family history or being a historian, you know, doing, digging where you stand about, you know, like the house through time that Olasova's doing, you can do that. I mean, so I I think it's really important not to specialise it too much, that it is a community activity history and therefore it's open and it's, and everybody can contribute. So when you say I'm not a historian, I laugh because I think, I don't know when I, I'm calling myself a historian now, but I can't even, I was too nervous for so long to say that word because it was something that we all did. And and somebody said, oh, you're a history, you're a historian now because you're a doctor of history. And I'm like, no, I'm not really. I'm not really a historian because of that. You know, that's that doesn't. Although it's important, it doesn't. It's not the point. The point yeah. in history is the province of all of us. Like that's the point. 
Fantastic. I think that is an excellent note on which to close things. So um, I highly recommend all our listeners check out the Bristol Radical History Group. I also highly recommend you buy uh, Roger uh, and his co-author's book. It's called From Wolfstan to Colston. And yeah, just one final thank you to uh, to, to Roger. And uh, I'm going to invite everyone to say goodbye. Lauren? Bye, Roger. Thank you so, so much. Um, absolute pleasure. Learned loads. Thank you. Tom? Thank you. Take care. Bye. And I'll let, I'll let Roger say his goodbyes as well. Well, thanks so much for having me on and putting up with me. So there you go. Cheers for that. So uh, this has been Requires Improvement. Uh, check us out on Twitter at RequiresPod. Uh, you can email us through that account. Uh, if you've got any feedback, if you've got any ideas for what we should be doing next, we're going to follow up on some of the issues that have been raised in this episode because we are particularly interested in the modern iteration of the Society of Merchant Venturers. We're going to do a little deep dive on what they've been up to in Bristol education over the last 10 years. Thank you for listening and catch you all soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.